To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray. God, we know our temptation is to exalt ourselves. We know our temptation is to put confidence in our own righteousness and to look down on others. We pray that you convict us this morning, that you show us the sinfulness of our ways, that we turn away from that and instead turn towards your heart. That we have a heart of a tax collector where we say, I need your mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That we call out to you, not expecting anything, knowing that we are undeserving, and being surprised by your favor, being surprised by your grace and your love, and that we ultimately are able to see your heart, that you delight to save sinners, that you care for us, that you watch over us, that you call us your own, and that you rescue us from the temptation of sin, from the penalty of sin, and justify us in your sight, not by our works, but by yours. In your name, amen. All right, I want to imagine for a second that you all are hiring managers of a Fortune 500 company. So congratulations on your promotions. Um, now, you have to fulfill a role in that company, and you have two t candidates in front of you. Candidate A comes into the interview and says, listen, I'm going to be great. I work really hard. If you call my last place of employment, they'll tell you that I've worked more than I needed to. I put in more hours than was required. I saved the company a ton of money. And not only did I save the company a ton of money, I made the company a ton of money. Now listen, there was other people at that place who weren't as good as me. Listen, they, they messed up and, and sort of management overlooked them. But I, didn't, I never did anything wrong. I didn't follow in their path. I, I actually avoided them. And instead, I always did the right thing. I'm going to be a great candidate for your company. I'm going to be a great worker. I'm going to work really hard. And I'm going to make sure to always do the right thing. So that's candidate A. Candidate B comes into your office and says, you know what? I'm not that great. You know, there's, there's been times in my life where I kind of messed up. I, I didn't do the right thing. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't save the company a lot of money. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm just not sure. I, I really just need this job. I want this job. Um, but I got to be honest with you. If you call my last place of employment, they're going to tell you that I stole from them. And I got to tell you that that's true. But I really hope that you hire me. Now, which candidate do you hire? It has to be candidate A. There's no way that you can go to anyone in the company and go, well, listen, candidate B felt sorry, so I decided to hire them. No, it has to be candidate A. And that's what is ridiculous about this passage, right? Because if we approach this passage, what, the question is, who would God love? 
And what is our expectation? Our expectation and the expectation of everyone hearing this passage and the Pharisee himself, the expectation would be that God would love the person who has it all together, who does the right actions. Yet who does Jesus say is justified? The tax collector. And Jesus actually points to us. There's, there, it's, it's not often that Scripture makes it plain to us. But if you look back at verse 9, it makes it obvious. What is the point of this passage? The point of this passage, the fundamental sin here, is that Jesus is talking to those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. And so this passage is telling us the focus that when we have confidence in our own righteousness or when we have a problem of looking down on anyone else, then we need to examine our hearts. And we're going to have to sit in the truth this morning a little bit that this is probably us. That we probably more often than not are overconfident in our own righteousness and look down on others. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. He gives us hope. He gives us the hope and the heart of the tax collector in which we get to call out to God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we receive the promise that we are justified before God. It is a surprising thing. It is an unexpected thing. And yet we get to receive it. So we're going to examine actually sort of three hearts this morning. We're going to examine the heart of the Pharisee, the heart of the tax collector, and the heart of God. So first, the heart of the Pharisee. Right away, we notice some faults of the Pharisee. Um, he's confident in his own righteousness, right? Look at, look at verse 12. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. He's promoting himself. He's confident in what he's done. And what is more evidence of this? I actually want you to take just a minute. Look back at the passage. How many times does the Pharisee refer to himself? And how many times does the Pharisee refer to God? So how many times does the Pharisee refer to himself? And how many times does the Pharisee refer to God? If you notice, he only mentions God once. But he mentions himself five times. Now, what is the Pharisee supposed to be doing in this passage? He went to the temple to pray. To whom? Well, it's supposed to be God. <laughs> but this prayer more sounds like what? A prayer to himself. You see, what the Pharisee did was he took an act of worship designed to give glory to God. And who did he give glory to instead? Himself. And when we become confident in our own righteousness like this Pharisee, then what we end up doing is we give glory to ourselves, and in the end, we turn ourselves into a God. And that's what the Pharisee was doing. The Pharisee stood before God and made himself a God in response where he said, look what I've created. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look at me and what I can create. And he became confident in his own righteousness. And that's what we do as well. When we become overconfident in our own righteousness, then we point to things in our life and we say, look what I've created. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. I am a God. Now worship me. And that's a scary place to be, isn't it? Because if we really consider the thoughts of this passage, we at times, and, and more often than not, probably think too highly of ourselves. And we put ourselves in a position claiming to be God, claiming to be creators of wealth, claiming to be builders of things and promoters of our own righteousness. That just isn't true. So not only is he confident in his own righteousness, but verse 11, he looks down on others. 
the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, I want to be clear, these are all bad things, right? I think we can all agree that we, we don't want people to rob. We, we don't want people to do evil. We don't want people to commit adultery. But can you hear the difference in this? What is the difference between that person robbed and that person is a robber? What is the difference in that person committed adultery and that person is an adulterer? What is the difference? One is an action, one is an identity. And what, and yes, God commands us to avoid stealing. God commands us to avoid robbery. But when someone fails, when someone sins, should we take that one action about them and generalize them to that thing? Should we pronounce judgment upon a person and say, because you've done this one thing, you are now identified with that thing? No, it's actually a step in the very direction that God commands us against. The generalization of people and the diminishing of their humanity. God actually says to love my what? Adulterer? <laughs> love my robber? No, he says love your neighbor because that's their identity. Another human being created in the image of God. Not to be identified with their sin. Now this happened 2,000 years ago, and we don't struggle with this today, right? We've, gone, we've moved past generalizing people, right? How long do you think it took me to look on the internet for generalizations of people? You want to hear some examples? I think we should do some examples. All Republicans care about is thoughts and prayers. They are incompetent. So if you are a Republican, you are incompetent. Democrats are racists, especially against white people. So if you are a Democrat, you are a racist. Those who reject the differences between male and females are idiots. So if you struggle with gender identity, you are dumb. Misgendering someone makes you a murderer. If you say, hey, I think God created you this way, and you misidentify them, then you are a murderer. Now, the struggle with this is some of you might be thinking the exact same thing that I thought this week as I prepared this sermon. Thank God I'm not like those people that generalize other people. We all do it, right? It's that easy. It seeps into our hearts, it seeps into our sin that easily to generalize people, to diminish other people. And why do we do this? I think for some of us it makes arguments easier. It's easier to lump together a group of people and say, well, they identify this way, so I'm just going to pronounce judgment upon all of them. I think for a lot of us it's easier to reject people this way. Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to specifically say I don't want to be around this person because of this issue and this issue and this issue, it's easier to just say, hey, this group of people who believe this one issue, I'm just going to reject you wholeheartedly. But I think God is fundamentally revealing to us what he says about this passage is that in our hearts we look down on others. We are taking someone who God has said is fearfully and wonderfully made and making them less than. And in essence, what are we doing all over again? We are once again making ourselves God. 
We are saying, I am going to be judge and jury over this people. That, that I will be the one to pronounce justification or not justification for this person. That I will pronounce their identity. And this is the way that they are to identify to everyone. And, and that identity is usually one that we say, this person is less than. And what we see is that these two things go hand in hand. In order to have confidence in our own righteousness, we need to diminish others. And in order to diminish others, we need to have confidence in our own righteousness. And what are we doing? We're making ourselves God. And what a scary place that is to be. Because imagine coming into this worship, in this, into this building, and instead of saying, I'm here to worship God, I am here to worship myself. To say, I have confidence in everything I've done. Look what I've done. Look how good I've, look what I've accomplished. Come worship me. And to stand before people and say, listen, I want to identify some people to you. That person and that person and that person are less than me and I'm better than them. And listen, you all should come to me and find justification. You should all come to me and find what I'm going to provide because I'm the one to save you. I am the one who's accomplished it. I'm going to be the one to get it done. I am a God. What a scary thing to say. What a scary thing to believe. And what God is telling us in this passage is that these sins are no big, not a no big deal type of thing. Not like, oh, we all do it. No, no, no. What God is calling us in this passage is to run from it. To run in the opposite direction. To flee from this evil. To avoid it at all costs. And so what we need to do is run against it, to fight against it. And where do we find hope? Where do we see where we can sort of rest our head? And that is in the heart of the one justified. That is in the heart of the tax collector. So what is the heart of the tax collector? We see him approaching God knowing that he is undeserving and he has no expectations of what will happen. So first, he approaches God knowing he is undeserving. And, and how do we know that? Look at verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven. So, so just imagine that posture, this posture in which, you know, standing at a distance, not looking up to heaven. Who has this type of posture? This is a posture of someone who doesn't believe they deserve to be there. And this is the tax collector's heart. We can tell that the tax collector's heart is one in which he comes to the temple and he says, I have no right to be here. <laughs> I'm not comfortable here. I don't, I don't deserve to be here. I, I don't deserve to pray to God. I don't deserve to worship God. And yet, I have to come to God, right? Like, it's almost like the tax collector is dragging himself to the temple to pray, even though he doesn't want to be there, because he says, I have to be there. And see, on the one hand, the Pharisee approaches with this boldness, this self-confidence of, well, I should be here. I deserve to be here. And yet, the Pharisee, the t or sorry, the, yet the tax collector approaches with meekness and with boldness. And he says, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve to be here. I'm undeserving. Even, even later on in the passage, he says, I am a sinner. I am not worthy to approach God, to worship him, to pray to God. And yet, he gets to. But he recognizes that he is undeserving to be in the presence of the Holy God. So not only does he recognize that he's undeserving, secondly, he approaches with no expectations of what will happen. Because when the Pharisee approaches, what is the expectation is, I'm justified. I'm good. What is the expectation of the, of the tax collector? Look at verse 13. And the, I want to make it clear, this is fundamental to our relationship with God and how the tax collector is just, justified. End of verse 13. God 
have mercy on me, a sinner. He is recognizing that it is God alone that he finds mercy. Not in himself, not in his comparison of others, but what his heart shows is that he is still not expecting mercy. It is, it is not something where he goes to God and go, well, you're supposed to forgive me, so, <laughs> you know, God have mercy on me, but I know you're going to forgive me. No, it's, it's God have mercy on me, a sinner, and he has no expectation of what God's going to do. He doesn't know if God's going to forgive him. He doesn't know if he's, if he's damned, but he just approaches God and he, he, says, he says, save me. And, and the, the hearers of this passage, we as we hear this passage, or the Pharisee in this passage, what was the expectation? The expectation was there would be justification for the Pharisee. But the tax collector did not approach with an expectation of justification. He simply went to God to ask and to beg. And to give you a good example of, of where the tax collector gets to react to this or how the tax collector reacts to this and how we should react to this is think back to Christmas time, right? So Christmas time, the time of gift giving, right? Um, what's one of the fun things that we do during Christmas leading up to Christmas is we ask people, what do you want for Christmas, right? So you ask a little kid, what do you want for Christmas? And they go, oh, I want this 3,000 piece Lego set. And you go, are you going to get it? I don't know. I, I hope. I don't know if I'm going to get it. I really want it. It's like the big gift of the year that I really, really want. But I don't know if I'm going to get it. Like, I hope I get it. Like, there's no expectation that they're going to get the gift. All right? I, I, the child understands, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I don't know if I'm going to get it. But I really, really hope that I get this 3,000-piece Lego set that I really want. All right? Now, you ask an adult, what do you want for Christmas? I don't know. I'll get something. Right? I mean, I'm going to be the one paying for it anyway, right? Like, I'm going to buy it for myself, right? Or my wife will buy it for me, right? And so what happens on Christmas morning? Christmas morning comes, the adult opens the gift. Oh, yay! Pajamas, right? What happens when the child opens the set? Legos! Legos! I got the Legos! I got the 3,000-piece Lego set that I always wanted, right? It's a surprise and it's blessing. Why? Because the child approached with an not having no, having no expectations and knowing they're undeserving. And then what do they receive? They receive a surprise and they receive a blessing because of it. And this is the heart of the tax collector. And this should be the heart of every believer. You see, when we approach God saying that we are undeserving, having an unexpected heart, then we are going to ex experience the surprise and blessing of God. It's in this heart that we are called to come and worship the one true risen Savior to say, I'm not worthy of any of this. To come before God and say, this building, this church, I, I don't deserve this. The, the, the worship, the music, the sermon, the programs that are presented here, I'm not worthy of any of this. And, and as Jesus, as it sort of presents to us in Scripture, that, that we are not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus' feet and wash them, that's the attitude that we are to come before the Lord in which we say, I am not worthy even to clean the floors of this place and be in the presence of the Holy God. But yet he lets me do this? Wait, wait, God allows me 
to be a part of this church, even though I'm a sinner, wait, God allows me to participate in worshiping him and glorifying him, even though I shouldn't be in his presence, that, that he uses me to advance his kingdom, even though I'm a failure, even though I've, I've sinned. And when we have that heart, we are surprised and we recognize the blessing that God has given us in his life. That when we have a heart that, that focuses and says, I am, I am a sinner in need of mercy, that I, I don't come in with expectations, that I, I, that, I, that I go before God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then when he has mercy on us, we get to say, what? And we get to recognize the blessing that God has done in our lives. And it combats, it completely combats us having a confidence in our own righteousness. But instead, we get to approach not only the worship of God, but we get to approach the rest of our lives going, I am blessed. I am incredibly blessed. And we get to go through the rest of our lives and go, wait, God, you have given me the honor and the privilege to raise up children in your name, as exhausting as that may be. What a blessing. Wait, God, you have given me a home that I can lay my head in. And although it gets dirty and messy and I have to clean it every week, what a blessing. Wait, wait, God, you're going to make me get up early on Thursday and Friday morning of VBS even though I'm exhausted. What a blessing. What a blessing, God, that you have given me the privilege and honor to share your good news to others. I don't deserve it. I don't even come close to earning it. And yet you are giving me this blessing to do this. And what we get to do is every single week, we get to come here and go, I don't deserve to be here. I am unworthy to be in the presence of the Lord. But I get to. And God calls me to it. And God calls me to worship him and honor him. And I get to participate in the worship of the Lord. No matter what songs are sung, no matter what is preached, no matter if I would choose to worship with that person and that person and that person, and no matter if it's hot or cold, I get to be here. What a blessing! What a blessing! And my posture is one of the tax collector, which recognizes I have no right, no claim to any of this. Not that I have a right to be here, but I am blessed to be here. And then the surprise comes, and that is what changes our hearts, and the surprise comes from God. It is one where we approach God in a heart that is humble to the point of being aware of our sins, aware of God's judgment of condemning them, making a frank confession of guilt with no excuses for our actions, with no expectation of reconciliation. And this brings us to the surprise. Because what is the surprise of the passage? Wait, the tax collector, he's the one who's justified? It's the point where we are reconciled to God. And this shows us the very heart of God. What is fundamental to our relationship with God and how the tax collector is justified is this, is this truth, that God delights to show mercy to sinners. That God delights to show mercy to sinners. That is the surprise. That is the shock. Because what do we expect? We expect Jesus to be like every other religion. 
we expect, like the Pharisee, that Jesus is going to show up and he's going to give us a moral improvement program. That Jesus is going to come and say, if you do this, this, and this, you will be justified in my sight. But it's not like that at all. This passage rather shows us the heart of God, that Jesus does not come to tell us how to live so that we may earn our salvation, but instead he rather comes to forgive us and save us through his life and death on our behalf. God's love and grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for God's mercy, grace, and their need for him as their Savior. And this is true of every believer, is that if you are a believer in Christ, then you at some point in your life have walked in the shoes of the tax collector. You have had the heart of the tax collector who has said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in response to that, what do we see? We see the heart of God. If you don't know about this, if you are unsure of your justification, if you don't know if you are right before God, then this is the sinner's prayer. Let me encourage you right now, call out to the Lord and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you will be the one who goes home justified. And not just to your physical home today, but to your eternal home. You will be in heaven with God for all of eternity. You will be the one who goes home justified before God. You will be a part of us who says, I have been pardoned of all my sins and have been accepted righteous in his sight. The Pharisee thought he was righteous, but did not receive the righteousness of God. The tax collector knew no righteousness of his own and received the righteousness of God. So for those who are wondering, even for those who haven't been, who've been believers for a long time, how does this work? Well, first, I think we have to take this passage seriously. We really have to challenge our hearts and recognize that we have the temptation to make ourselves God. That we put way too much confidence in our own righteousness and that we end up looking down on others. And in order to fight against this, in order to combat this, in order to go completely against this, then that we need to pursue a heart that has a posture that says, I am blessed. <laughs> and one that is constantly surprised by the grace of God, to say, wait, what? He lets me do this? And fundamentally and most importantly, we need to know the heart of God. We need to come before God knowing, my, knowing that His sufficiency of His grace triumphs our insufficiency. The more we come before God, the more we are going to see our sinfulness and the more we're going to see the heart of God and appreciate his grace for us. Let me share a story with you that I heard in seminary. The story is this, that the events that were leading up to David's arrest had been years in the making. When he was growing up, the polite phrase his family would use to describe David's mental capability was this, he has a harder time learning than most. As an adult, David had a desire for independence. 
and to live his own life, so he wanted to experience thrills and the things that go along with it. And he developed relationships with people who stole and who did drugs, and he ended up becoming one of those people that stole and did drugs. And in this seeking of independence, in this seeking of thrills, he ended up hurting another man very, very badly. And so he was arrested and placed in jail. But for a man with the mental capacity of an eight-year-old child, I mean, just imagine putting an eight-year-old in prison. It was too much for him. And when he was in that jail cell, he sat in the corner trembling, scared, crying. And there was another man in that jail cell with him who had done great evil as well. But he saw something about David and simply shared this. Jesus can help you. Trust him. And the truths that David had learned a little bit while attending church came flooding back to him and his heart. And he prayed to God and he said, God, forgive me. And he trusted in Jesus as his Savior. And what did he experience? He experienced the surprise and blessing of God's grace. And David began to send letters to his family. And one of the very first letters that his family received from prison was, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And you know what? His family was shocked because they didn't even know that David could write. But David was writing letter after letter of Scripture back to his family. The truth is, David had done evil. And David's going to be in jail for a long time. But the greater truth is that he will be with Jesus forever. Forgiven, restored, treasured, and transformed. This is the gospel for David. David is going home justified. Because he called out to God and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the gospel for David. And this is the gospel for each and every one of us who has put their trust in Jesus and said the exact same thing. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You will go home justified and you will be before the Lord in glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you rescue us, that you save us, that you give us your love, that, that in spite of our temptation to put confidence in ourselves, despite our temptation to, to make ourselves gods, you, you break us of that. You remind us that we are sinners in need of salvation. And we get to see the heart of the tax collector, which we don't, don't get to go to you and go, justify me, or I expect this. But instead we get to say, wait, what? <laughs> you save me, you rescue me, allow me to do this. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the privilege of being able to come before you and worship you, although we are undeserving and unworthy. And we thank you for your heart, that you delight to show mercy to sinners. We pray we remember that, that we hold fast to that, so that we may run to you in any sin that is in our life and ask once again to be forgiven and fight against it. In your name, amen.